The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So some of you know at least that we've been um, going through the ten paramis, this list in Buddhism, the ten perfections of the heart. So tonight we're beginning equanimity as the tenth parami, ten of ten. So we're just beginning to finish up this year and a half reflection on these ten qualities. And equanimity is an especially good one to end with in a way probably more easily than some of the other qualities, it really seems to um, reflect the practice well. But I think we have a lot of, I, I do at least, a lot of misunderstandings about equanimity. I remember once in a longer retreat where uh, more equanimity was starting to come up in my practice. And it really threw me for a loop. I didn't know what it was. I thought I was doing something wrong. <laughs> so, you know, what is the actual experience of equanimity? Or what do we even mean by equanimity? And a lot of times, you know, hearing that word, we have a sense of that somehow we've withdrawn from the world, like we've lost passion. And there's some truth to that. The mind is sort of uh, less charged less reactive, but it's not less energized. And I think that's the thing. Equanimity is a hyper-energetic state of mind. And I like to think of it in terms of potential, like the mind has a lot of energy, but that energy is in a potential state. It's willing to do whatever it needs to do, but it doesn't need to do anything. You know that feeling when, you know, we often know the feeling like, we have a lot of energy, but it has an agenda, like it wants to do something, wants to make something happen, wants to get rid of something or fix something. But maybe more rarely we have that experience where there's a lot of energy in the body and mind, but all that energy, all that brightness is very content just to, just to be energetic, <laughs> just to be alive. And so then, uh, equanimity, you know, this is the other related sort of misunderstanding of equanimity that it's not only withdrawal, but if there's a passivity like, I'm just going to let the world be. No matter how bad it is, or no matter how much the moment might need some response, but I'm equanimous, so I'll get to it later, you know, when I'm not, a, not equanimous anymore. But because it's a potential energy, and because there's no agenda to that energy, that awake, wakeful, bright, clear energy, then it's just as happy to move into action as it is to stay sort of still. Because it it's characterized by not having any agenda. We've been using Sylvia Borstein's book, um, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. So she has a chapter for each of the ten paramis here. And this is her first paragraph. Uh, 
for the chapter on equanimity. To perfect my equanimity, I need to accept every experience into my awareness. I cannot refuse to pay attention. Refusing itself, the mind tensing in withdrawal, is suffering. So I want to, there's more, but I want to stop there. The mind tensing in withdrawal is suffering. So it's kind of an interesting reflection. Non-equanimity is suffering. Equanimity is not suffering. I mean, we could say this for any of the ten paramis. Non-kindness, ill will, is suffering. Kindness or goodwill is non-suffering. So whenever the mind has an agenda, and we need to, I mean, words are a little tricky here, a self-centered agenda. Because our heart-mind, that energy I was talking about, it can respond without there being an agenda, a personal self-centered agenda. And this is the thing we have to discover. This is what's so good about, you know, as our center community is developing, we're getting all these subgroups, these little community groups. I was talking to Melissa, who I think is here tonight somewhere. She's been, uh, she set in motion, uh, there she is, <laughs> the mindful, mindful hiking group, you know, and there's a mindful educators group. And there's all these different groups that meet partly just to develop community and partly because they are attracted to a particular activity or want to reflect on a particular part of life together from the perspective of this practice. So the idea is, that is not to somehow remove ourselves from life, but to learn how to be a human being, to take a hike, to knit, to cook, to fall in love, to get a divorce, to raise children, to do all the things that human beings inevitably do, but to do it with equanimity, not as a personal agenda. And you know, this should sound as provocative as anything. Because, especially when we start naming more intense things, like getting a divorce or um, falling in love, it just seems, well, like how could that be done without it being a personal agenda? And this is really the development of equanimity. You remember in the, in the guided instructions, you know, we begin by, uh, usually for most of us, most of the time when we're sitting, we begin by calming the mind, taking the dispersed, scattered mind, and we collect it around some experience, like being mindful of the breath, watching the breath go in and out, hearing sounds come and go. And we train the mind. It's a real training to just collect itself in one experience, and therefore it has to let go of everything else. And that sort of dropping all of that self-centered activity we start to feel a, a healing, a healing wholeness, peacefulness, calm, when the mind collects itself around any experience. And there's something important here about equanimity. Because as we let go of everything, just, just that capacity, just discovering or rediscovering that capacity not to have to be dwelling on the past or dwelling on the future, is to discover a little bit about equanimity. Because as soon as the future arises in my mind, almost by definition, 
I have to do something about it. I either have to like be afraid of that future imagining or attracted to it. Or if a, the past arises in our mind, we feel we have to do something about it. So to be able to let go of past and future planning and worrying, even to be able to let go of sensations and to just bring the attention to the breath, we're already learning something about what it means not to be reactive. It's like a, a slow but powerful shift in our relationship to the conditions of the world. That's why it's such a useful theme for practice, equanimity. And in a way, it's the easiest way to begin to understand the mind of a Buddha, as I imagine it at least, or understand what it means to develop this path, are these moments of equanimity where the mind is sensitive but not needing to do anything with what it's sensitive to. Now, the next step is to be sensitive and to also be able to respond. So, you know, in the, you know, in the, this particular form of practice, we have our stillness. We sit still. We sit for, you know, often for a certain amount of time, and we hold the body relaxed and still. Because we're... Because if we, if we didn't have that particular form or container, we wouldn't be able to as easily recognize what equanimity is or what wisdom is. But we don't want to get stuck on stillness. Like, in order to express equanimity, the body has to be still, or the mind and body has to be not doing something in order to be equanimous. But it's the best way to learn it, or it's a good way at least to learn it, to sit still and to see how everything can come and go and how that can be okay. And then when we get good at that, then we can see how things come and go, including our personality, including intentions to say something or do something, to stand up, to stretch. And so the sort of graduate level of equanimity is to be a human being in the world. And so the you know, when we're sitting still, we're sensitive and we're not attached, the mind's not attached. And because of the tether, because of the particular form of being still, it's sort of all we can do is just know, just be sensitive and let things go. But in graduate level equanimity, we're knowing, we're sensitive, but anything, but we're sort of uh, loosening the screws on the body and mind, so we can think what needs to be thought, say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done. But the equanimity doesn't change. The mind is still letting go, still not dependent, not reacting, still expressing a kind of contentment or ease. I just want to repeat one point again before I go back to this opening paragraph in Sylvia's book. It's so easy for us to imitate, to want to imitate equanimity, you know, especially those of us who are interested in Buddhist practice because we hear so much about it. And we can even understand it deeply in an intellectual way that it really makes sense. Non-reactivity makes so much sense. I mean, all of us have all kinds of war wounds. <laughs> 
from being reactive, you know, and then causing a lot of pain because of that. And so we all understand the, the virtue of non-reactivity. So we can get in this mode of like, well, I'm just going to be non-reactive. And this is like, in meditation, being dependent on being still in order to know to meditate or to be mindful. And making mindfulness and stillness of the body synonymous. It's the same way where we imitate equanimity and we, and we somehow value this flat persona in the world where we're just, uh, you know, don't feel like we should laugh heartily or show any kind of emotion because we're a Buddhist practitioner and somehow that's not appropriate. But remember that the path is about being free. It's not about being any particular kind of person, but to be free in whatever kind of person we are in that moment. Like how not to be burdened by whoever, whatever is arising in our personality and our experience in that moment. That's the only value. You know, in Buddhist practice, the only value is understanding suffering and release or freedom from suffering. It's not about an ideal or perfecting an ideal. It's about not suffering. So that the initial emphasis on concentration or collecting is just based, it's really pragmatic. In order to explore this potential that we all have to be equanimous, to be free, we have to understand the proximate cause for that is first and foremost to feel safe to feel some ease or peace. Otherwise, the equanimity is going to be a defensive stance, like a way to manage the difficulty in life. I'll be equanimous. I'll be non-reactive. It's like as if that could be the best strategy in life to remove ourselves from our humanness. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make sense. Even though on a certain level it makes sense to restrain ourselves or refrain from doing things that are harmful, but as a long-term strategy, it's not enough. So we calm down. We feel that sort of wholeness and that joy when we've dropped a lot of the things that are agitating. And we're just with the breath. We're just with sounds. And the mind feels whole and calm. That's a really good place to begin to explore the possibility of equanimity. Not when we're agitated, not when we're upset, because then it's going to be more like repression. We'll take equanimity to be a kind of repression. So equanimity is one of the four Brahma-Faharas. It's a beautiful quality of mind. It's an enlivened, whole quality of mind, not a fragmented, not a tight quality of mind. So just keep that in mind as you practice in daily life, as you practice in your formal sitting time. The proximate cause, first and foremost, is to be happy, this inner happiness. And then the deeper um, cause for equanimity is out of that inner happiness, the mind gets more clear, the seeing is more stable. And we begin to see very clearly how conditional everything is, how impermanent everything is. The more we see that flow of our minds, of our experiences, that everything's ephemeral, inconstant, 
insubstantial really, then the tendency to react just fades away. So again, the first cause for the, the rising of equanimity is just to feel good. Right? When we feel good, when the heart's relatively content, when we're comfortable in a deeper way, then we're not struggling to make things other than they are. So that already that's a big step in the direction of equanimity. But we want to notice it. So when we do have moments where we feel content and happy, then we want to actually investigate those moments and in a sense like, oh, this is equanimity. The not needing to make things other than they are that I'm feeling right now, this is equanimity. And I kind of get a taste of that. And then uh, the more we explore, the second and deeper aspect of equanimity is having insight into the conditional and impermanent nature of things. And the mind just naturally, this isn't something anybody does, the mind naturally stops reacting, stops grasping as much. Because it doesn't make sense when the mind is seeing how fluid everything is, how conditional, meaning that, as Sylvia says, things are breathtakingly the way they have to be in this moment. And when the mind sees that, reactivity doesn't make sense. So reactivity falls away, revealing deeper and deeper experiences of equanimity. So this deeper kind of equanimity is really the abandoning of reactivity. That's really its expression. So now I'll finish Sylvia's quote here. So I, I ended by saying, refusing itself, the mind tensing in withdrawal, is suffering. And turning the mind away, refusing to look, would preclude complete and clear seeing. When my mind greets all moments with equal respect, it maintains stature enough to see that causal connection set every experience into its lawful time and place, that everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. Let me reread that last uh, sentence. It's quite long. When my mind greets all moments with equal respect, it maintains stature enough to see that causal connection set every experience into its lawful time and place, that everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. On a, maybe in a superficial way, you know, we, we resist this, as I mentioned in that one particular retreat. I really resisted this. The more, on some level, my mind was opening and seeing that everything is breathtakingly the way, it, the way it is, the only way it could be in this moment, and a kind of uh, peacefulness and um, stillness began to arise in my mind. Part of my mind, the conditioned mind, the habitual mind, was frightened 
and just assume that something was wrong. It's like um, beginning to, to understand the difference between the stillness and a, and a life that's uh, fully engaged, a kind of a freedom to respond appropriately in the moment. And it, it can be confusing because when we hear a word like stillness or when we hear a word like equanimity, we assume you know, that it has to do with withdrawal or restraint or some kind of containment, which in a way is the opposite of freedom. You know, if this path is all about learning how to more skillfully contain our evil tendencies, I mean, maybe it's the best we can do, but it's uh, it's not that enticing, is it? <laughs> you know, to just learn how better to contain the beast inside of us that you know wants to burst forth and do things. And certainly not what the Buddha taught, or the way he talked about the fruit of practice is a release, is a freedom. Uh, kind of going beyond rigidity and tension and heaviness. Even the need to be good is a heavy trip. Not that it's bad, but it's, it can't be, can't be what we would consider a full release to have to be good. So there's a, a great line from, I think it's from Rumi. So I wrote it down here. Yeah, I mean, a translation of Rumi. A lot of his poems have been translated in a very free way, so it's hard to know what the Persian actually said. But it got translated as, emptiness brings peace to love. And I think this is, for me at least, a really rich um, practice reflection. Emptiness brings peace to love. So here, emptiness is just another word for stillness or the absence of self-centered activity, the absence of ignorance operating in the mind. That's what the stillness is. That's what the emptiness is in Buddhism. It isn't a nihilistic emptiness where all things somehow implode and leave behind absolutely nothing, which is sometimes what we think. But the emptiness is the absence of self-centered activity, but not the absence of a mind, not even the absence of habit energy. It's really the absence of confusion in the mind, the kind of confusion that takes things personally. So this is how you can get that stillness and that full engagement at the same time. So we want to practice, like as a theme for the next six weeks, we want to practice all day long. But recognize that the, the form is really useful, having moments of relative stillness, or even like relative simplicity, where you're not, you know, like it's relatively hard when we're breaking up with someone to express equanimity. But if we're by ourselves or with our cat, you know, petting our cat, something more neutral, something more pleasant, then it may be a little easier to realize real equanimity and then keep bringing it 
into more places, sort of widening the scope. So emptiness brings peace to love. So normally, our love, our engagement in the world, is contaminated by our self-centered activity. That's what the Buddha would call ignorance. The basic problem we human beings have is our activity in the world, how we think about the world, how we interact, how we relate, is uh, under the influence of our self-centered activity. So the insight, emptiness, stillness, brings peace to love. So it purifies love. Because we all feel in a way that we're experts at love. Because we do. We care about things. But almost always, to some degree, even if it's just subtle, our love is contaminated by attachments and fear. I mean, can you... I can just... I mean, they, those moments in my life where my love and my connection with another person or with some activity, when it wasn't very con contaminated by self-centered stuff, they stand out, those moments. They're unusual for me. And I would imagine that's generally true for all of us. So the cultivation of equanimity really depends on a, deep, a deepening of this insight. And... Uh, this insight, again, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, you know, it requires first and foremost just to know what wholesome joy feels like in the mind, in the heart. Just to feel contentedness and peacefulness and calm. And that's like the first glimpse or flavor of equanimity. Because when we're really happy and content, then the mind's more spacious. Like I'm sure you've noticed it's just in a gross way like if uh, you get something you've wanted, well, a lot of the things that would normally irritate you don't irritate you. Like uh, if you're normally irritated by humid weather, but you're with your best friend doing what you like to do, well, all of a sudden the humidity isn't irritating the mind. But if we're having a hard day and we trip and stub our toe and can't find our keys, well, then the humidity is going to drive us crazy if we don't like humidity. And so this is just, uh, uh, just an example of how we can uh, really benefit and use pleasantness, wholesome pleasantness, to learn something about the mind. Normally what we do when we experience something pleasant is we stop practicing because we feel good, you know. But in this you know, tradition, when things are going well, we want to spend just as much energy looking at the mind, being interested in how it is, because we can learn a lot from pleasant states, especially wholesome pleasant states. Basically, we can learn a lot from any moment. And when we're suffering, there's certain lessons to be learned. And when we're not suffering and feeling really content and happy, there's certain lessons to learn. Maybe one more point before I open it up for discussion. This is from another one of my longtime teachers. Uh, she was one of the um, teachers at the annual three-month retreat at IMS, Mc Michelle McDonald-Smith, a wonderful teacher and kind of unusual in, 
she she's on her surface, you know, just on the level of her personality. She doesn't seem like what we might stereotypically think as as a, a, equanimity because she's got a lot of vibrancy and uh, laughs a lot and uh, has, when mentioned uh, after our, lo- our, our month-long retreat this last spring because Michelle teaches a retreat at IMS at the same time at the retreat center when and I were at the Forest Refuge but when does this long walk in this beautiful country road after lunch and Michelle would take her walk because uh, she was teaching at the time and when would always say oh there was Michelle always on her cell phone <laughs> walking fast talking laughing So we have these ideas. But anyway, Michelle has this great line. She said something um, like, just explain it, just as a reflection, how hard we work to keep everything from being as it is. And just to start seeing like how dependent our mind is on struggling with the moment. You know, we have become experts, I mean, in fact, all of human civilization, in a way, it is a manifestation of this. It's a manifestation of, uh, of how hard we've worked over the centuries to keep everything from being as it is. And imagine if we had spent as much human ingenuity, human effort, human reflection, you know, working hard at letting things be the way that they are, recognizing this is how it is, and then really letting it be. Now that doesn't preclude the personality responding. All it's doing is it's setting something in front of that complete, full connection, awareness, acceptance is the proximate cause for the response. And it's different, you know. So, you know, as human beings, I'll see a mess in in my kitchen, or I'll see a mess at Common Ground, and I have to be really attentive. Otherwise, I've already reacted, and it feels so appropriate to react. Even, like, sometimes the reaction is, well, that's not my problem. You know, my wife left that. Or, you know, it's not my problem, but she's my problem. (laughs) Or whatever it might be. But... The first, you know, in terms of practice, it's like really getting that this mess is already here. It's already this way. And the real important thing in this moment of experience is to be free with this mess. To be a happy, content, released human being with this experience, in this experience. And then, in the next moment, if the mind, heart decides to respond, if that's appropriate, then it's not coming out of reactivity, non-acceptance, because there's been acceptance. And it's amazing how radically it changes how we're responding, how we're relating to things. So I'll leave it here. So we have lots of time tonight to check in. This is obviously something we have a lot of experience with, reactivity, and equanimity. So any questions you have about the experience of equanimity, any experiences you'd like to share with the group where you learn something about reactivity, about non-equanimity, or experiences of equanimity you'd like to share. So what comes to mind?
Yeah, say your name. Tracy, um, I would like to ask you about journaling as a part of the meditation practice. Um, I know that a lot of times I need to write out my feelings and to kind of process things, and there's kind of a saying that you don't write to understand. Um, or excuse me, you don't write to be understood, but you write to understand. Mm-hmm. And I find this to be really true with me, that a lot of times I'm very angry, and I think I'm very justified in that anger. That's sure right. And then I go and I journal, and about a half hour later, it's like I've forgiven somebody, I've released this anger. So I find that it can help with meditation, that I can like let things go. That I can be more skillful in my thinking, or if I'm just really in a rut, that I practice that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, something I almost grudgingly do. I mean, I sometimes I really gotta get to a state where I'm just in such a bad mood, I can barely stand myself, and then I'm like, oh, alright, and I don't yeah. really want to. And then by the time I'm done, I feel so much better. Um, so I guess I would ask maybe. Is this like kind of along the lines of practicing the equanimity, or is it sometimes like also in my head I'm like trying to change things? Like, oh, I know this will make me feel better, so if I just go and do it, I can mm-hmm. change how I'm thinking. Or yeah, well, it sounds like you're asking all the right questions, reflecting all in the right way, and in a way, I mean, the most important thing about the the path of practice is a deepening, strengthening of self-reliance. So, like, I, I think it's good to raise, and it's just good for us all to hear you say that and to reflect on our own sort of uh, rituals and practice. But the important thing is for us to develop a way of looking at it to sort of answer the question, is it skillful or not? Um, and I think you kind of already answered it in how you described your experience with it. It seems, from what you said, that it actually supports your understanding, supports the mind, the heart's ability to have perspective and to let go of what can be let go of. Now, the, the one thing I'd add, to, not just to that, but basically to any form to our practice, including sitting meditation, including coming to Common Ground on Sunday nights, including dependency on a teacher or uh, Dharma friends or spiritual friends, that we, the, another important attribute of the practice or the path of practice is independence, not being dependent on journaling in your case. So as you're doing it and as you're deriving benefit from it, and maybe this is what you mentioned at the end, you know, where you had some doubt about whether, I forget exactly how you said it, but you know, whether you're dependent on it. But you didn't use that word, I forget exactly how you said it. We always want to be reflecting on, like, how is it that journaling is helping the mind release its clinging, release its confusion, release its attachment. We want to be sort of refining that skill so we don't need what's extra. So that the actual shell, you know, the surface of sitting down, taking out the journal, writing down what happened, that activity is a container 
for a movement in the mind. It sort of supports a release in the mind or an arising of insight or a rising of perspective in the mind that wasn't there before. Same with sitting practice, same with going on retreats, same with talking with uh, wise friends. You know, we have all these different forms. And it's great to use them, but we don't want to be dependent because then when you can't journal, for whatever reason, the, the actual process of letting go or the process of the mind clarifying itself hasn't, isn't being stopped. You can still do that. So just to understand what it is about journaling. And the other thing that that does is it, it makes us be able to practice more and more in daily life and not have to wait till we go home and journal about it. So there we are right now in the anger with the person who we're angry with. But if we really refine that experience, really unpack that experience of journaling, so we understand that mind movement, like what the mind is doing as it's processing, which you call processing it through writing, then why can't we just activate it to some degree right there in the moment? I mean, eventually we want to aspire to be able to do it in the moment. So we're not dependent on having to go on a retreat in order to process all my unskillful behavior over the last year. You know, but to be able to process it right now as I'm living. That's really, in a way, that's kind of like a, a de- definition of enlightenment is to be processing all of our habit energy as it's arising. So basically it's not leaving a trace. So any kind of fear or anger or greed that might get triggered in our interactions in life, experiences in life, we may not be able to sort of completely eliminate that conditioning, that habit energy in the mind, but we can immediately, as it's arising, see it for what it is and basically do all the work we do when we sit for an hour or journal for an hour. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts about equanimity that come to mind or questions, experiences from your practice? Yeah, Gail. What's the, um, what do you call it when it's just one-off? One-off? Yeah. Like with compassion. Oh, near enemy. Yeah, indifference that somehow equating equanimity with some kind of withdrawal, which is a subtle form of aversion. You can just reflect on your own experience of it. You know, times when you felt equanimous, like uh, one way it's translated sometimes is as quiet confidence. It's like we don't have to be reactive because there's a quiet confidence that trusts that the heart's going to respond appropriately. So instead of reacting out of fear or greed, it's more like from that place of stillness, there's a knowing that the personality, the life is responding to life, to the moment. And there's freedom in that. Yeah, Todd. This is kind of a question. Um, you know that my experience has been it's pretty easy to be autonomous when things are going well. And you know, I think you kind of brought that in starting this, you know, when you're feeling good in the meditation. But it's a lot more difficult to be autonomous with states like aversion or anger or 
being overwhelmed. Yeah. Sir, we used to practice with those things too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll start with the most effective but not always available practice, which is in Zen they've got a phrase called the backward step, which I always as I have liked a lot. And it's like a, a simple but radical disengagement with that um, aversive state, let's say. And that it's not that that sort of radical disengagement doesn't involve any sort of pushing away. It can't involve any reactivity because then it's just more of the same. And that's what doesn't work. I mean, mostly we really get that. And that's actually that's an important insight that struggling isn't the way to non-struggle, to non-struggling, you know, or to the freedom from struggle doesn't arise by uh, struggling. So that radical disengagement is sort of, um, it's like this another one of these chicken and egg things. It's relying on some faith or confidence that, that the mind is able to step outside and to see that it's just this. It's, in other words, be mindful of it. But remember, mindfulness, it sounds so sort of ordinary, but mindfulness in the deepest sense is a very radical move the mind is making. Because it's normally, as we're aware of things, <clears throat> we're not aware that the mind is entangled. The knowing, in a sense, is entangled with what's being known. It seems personal. It seems important. There's tension, there's weight in the knowing, in the activity, in our moments. But in a moment of mindfulness, it's as if the activity, like what's being known, and the knowing, there's a very clean distinction between the two, even though it's all right here in the moment. And that distinction, that, I don't want to use the word separation, but um, yeah, but that, that space allows, uh, even though we can't maybe maintain it, it allows uh, sort of a, a moment of freedom where we can change our attitude about the aversion or the confusion. So we might get pulled back in, but we won't forget, we won't as easily forget that it's okay. So even though I'm drowning in the confusion, drowning in the aversion, there's part of the mind that understands this is okay. This is okay. And what that does is it reduces the reactivity. And it might even eliminate the reactivity, but the momentum of that mind state may continue on for a while. And this is, this is really an important point, that when we do, when we do activate you know, through faith, we activate that spacious, wise perspective that understands that this anger, this confusion, it's just the mind state here and now. So we have that perspective, but that, if we expect that perspective to make the painful mind state go away, we'll get tripped again. So we have to, we, we activate that perspective, and then we practice patient endurance, because the momentum of that on that sort of painful mind state, it's as much as it is. And it, it might, like if we've been wrapped up in it for a while, there's kind of a body-mind 
feedback loop that takes some time to quiet down. We can't be venting or spewing hatred for three hours and then pop it in one moment. We can't pop it, meaning we can't sort of uh, step outside of it and realize that this painful state doesn't belong to anybody. But the painful state may continue, but it's just not landing, or at least not landing as much. And that may be hard for some of you to understand that it really depends on that experience of being with pain, but not being burdened or weighed down by the pain. And the, the easiest place to learn this is just the physical pain and sitting still. You know, after you've been sitting for a while, the body starts to hurt. Normally, we don't like the pain and we resist it because it just seems so appropriate to resist painful sensations. But the more we practice, the more it's very clear that that is not useful to resist painful sensations. So eventually, we realize this other way of being where there's painful sensations. Because we're not getting up and moving, they're not going away but where the mind has realized to some degree that the pain is just pain. And not taking it personally, there's a lot of space, even though it's still pain in the knee. It's just sort of interesting. It's like a koan. What is knee pain when there's no, when the mind isn't constructing a somebody who has knees? What is the experience of knee pain when there isn't a strong sense of self. And you see, it kind of really brings us into the moment, you know, because all of us probably have some discomfort now in the body. So what is discomfort? It's a little bit like what I said with the concentration, too. You know, we use the breath, for example, or whatever people like to begin the meditation practice. It could be the metta, loving-kindness phrases. It could be hearing could be more generally the predominant sensations in the body. But we usually use something to collect the attention of the mind, to gather it, to unify the mind. And then, then after a while, right there with the breath, there's also the experience of the mind that's collected with the breath. There are two things, and you can't separate them out. There's the knowing the breath, and then the mind, in a sense, rejoicing in the relative simplicity like just this, you know, instead of a scattered, dispersed mind. And so that sort of, uh, there's a transition where the joy of the simple mind becomes more predominant than the sensations of the breath, but it's dependent on the sensations of the breath. But over and over, I mean, over time, it's sort of like the breath becomes less important because the mind knows that experience of unification. So it's less dependent on the breath. And it can just take, in a sense, beauty, that inner beauty, as its object without being so dependent on the breath. And it's the same with uh, equanimity, where the more we practice with like aversion, stepping outside, and or like I was saying, knee pain, you know, and sort of bringing that space, that empty space, or that kind of open space, where we're not taking the knee pain personally, the more we know that experience of freedom, then the mind that doesn't take experience personally, it's engaged, it's intimate, it's still sensitive, but it's not constructing a somebody 
who owns the experience, the quicker it can go right to that freedom. So you, the mind can go right from being very entangled in pain or very entangled in some problem in your life or anger or lust, very wrapped up to that backward step that sort of insight, oh, it's just thinking, you know, it's just this emotion. And because the mind knows the experience of freedom, it's like a free fall right into the experience of freedom. So we can go from being very entangled to free. But it, it depends on a deepening recognition or a deepening sort of um, intuition about freedom or non-grasping or emptiness. And it, it, surprisingly, it kind of goes back to what you're saying too, like the form, the structure of the practice is really important initially. But we then want to, like we might have a form where we say, oh, okay, I'm suffering, so I'm just going to name it. Okay, oh, it's just anger. You know, we do that enough times, and then, you know, we might consciously deconstruct it. Oh, yeah, it's just this, it's just that, that's just a thought, that's just an emotion. And the, the form can be quite complicated and involved, but it's effective and really useful in supporting the experience that when the mind is entangled, suffering. When the mind is completely disentangled, no suffering. And then eventually, it's like a, a magical wormhole develops where we don't need all the complicated, skillful means or techniques. The mind can go more quickly to freedom or more quickly to samadhi. But if we think, I need the journaling or I need this particular naming technique, it actually starts to get in the way. It's almost like too much. So, uh, so even though we use the technique, we want to slowly wean ourselves from it by understanding what the technique is doing. Of course, another way, Todd, and you know, and you know this well, another way to work with difficult experience, whether it's mental or physical, when we're not able to just step outside of it or to sort of open up the space, is to, in a sense, so there we are as a normal, with our normal human mind, feeling oppressed by the anger in the mind or feeling oppressed by the pain in the knees. But there's, a, there's a, just a little inkling of faith. And so with that inkling of faith, we can practice uh, a kind of endurance. So the last thing we want to do is just react. So just to sort of be there as a suffering human being, but being okay about being a suffering human being. In a way, in a funny way, we're creating space to be a suffering human being. And you can even be a little bit um, active, more active in this kind of practice where you could say, like, even if it kills me, I'll be with this anger or this pain in the knee. It's like, I'm not going to move. I'm just going to explore, like, is it actually dangerous to be feeling what I'm feeling, seeing what I'm feeling? and to really explore that. So we're not getting any uh, immediate freedom except the freedom from not making it worse is what we're getting. So we're not necessarily getting relief, but we're in this sort of place where we're not making it worse and not making it uh, better. But it's actually can be a lot of practice. <laughs> you may not want to hear this, but a lot of practice is in this place where 
the mind is caught to some degree, reactive to some degree to either our activity in the mind or what's going on in the body, there's not enough space or wisdom in the mind to, to release its involvement. But there's enough wisdom not to keep feeding it. And we're kind of in this place where we don't want to lose that, because uh, if the mind starts to get tired or if we lose our continuity of mindfulness, we go, it gets worse. I'm sure a lot of you have had this experience with physical pain. It's like, it's like people, people really get into stillness when they realize that any restlessness just makes it much worse. And so you can find that, okay, if I just hold perfectly still and practice this sort of skillful endurance, it's tolerable. But if I at all, in any way, try to make the pain go away, it just gets really bad. <laughs> and it's, it's actually, it's, I think, a useful place to be. And if we can, then, just to sort of bring a little bit of investigation, like in that relative stability, like what can we do? Like maybe just bring in a little bit of compassion, a little bit of um, patience, or a little bit of forgiveness. Like forgiving the part of the mind that wants to destroy the painful sensations. Thanks, time. There's probably a lot more to say about that, of course. Other thoughts? Maybe time for one more comment or thought before we end? Yeah, Eric. I had a really powerful experience of this oh, a number of years ago when a relationship was ending, leading to divorce. A lot of tense situations came up, and I knew that I just couldn't react with loudness or anger. And I just couldn't be helpful. And so I thought I would be, I wasn't practicing but this idea of equanimity is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would do. I would not react. And uh, it turned out to be very helpful in sort of getting through the day. But the agenda was very narrow, and I just felt kind of dead during those times. And the best advice I got was by responding in a way that the kindest person in the world <laughs> And when I shifted to that, all of a sudden, it wasn't about me. Yeah. And in some way, it wasn't even about the other person. It was about the suffering she was yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of making that jump from sort of pseudo-equanimity to something really yeah. And like we've been talking this last month, you know, we talked about uh, kindness or love and as a as a reflection of wisdom. So it's a way to step out. You know, that's the way to step outside of the entrenched, self-centered position. And there are many, but that's obviously one of the most effective because because on some level we know we've, we've bumped into that experience of universal kindness or sort of a non-personal kindness that you described. And so, and especially when it kind of comes just at the right time, you know, that that instruction you got from a friend or whomever, you know, it was probably after you had started to get that, you know, imitating equanimity wasn't going to work, you know. And although it probably was better than just 
raw reactivity, you know. It probably was, but that ultimately was unhealthy and you needed the next step. But it was probably just, it's like how the world can deliver really the right uh, teaching at the right moment. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words and maybe take a breath. Maybe recognizing how everything now is breathtakingly the way that it has to be, the way that it is. Noticing that beautiful stillness when we understand that this is how it is now. It stops the reactive mind. So it's our aspiration to cultivate this wisdom, this great compassion for the benefit of our own well-being and the benefit of all beings without exception. So thanks everyone for coming tonight. Nice to see everybody on this holiday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.